Father, uh, Father God in heaven, we would just commit this morning to you uh, the things that we're going to talk about. And I just pray that the, the difficulties that we face in life, the trials that we see around us, the trials we go through ourselves, that those would be occasions for us to see you as the strong, the mighty God that, that wants to take care of us, that we would have our faith strengthened, that we would look like people who really believe in you. And we pray for that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, on the front of your bulletin, if you look at it, it says collaboration. And that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> so that'll be next week. Uh, instead, because of uh, some stuff going on in the church and some stuff going on in the, the country, um, we're going to talk about something different this morning. And what we're going to talk about is money. So if you're new with us this morning, if you're, uh, you're a visitor, if this is your first time here, uh, I'm sorry that we're going to talk about some family business um, and we're going to talk about money. The upside of it's this. When you go talk to people and you say, hey, I visited a new church this Sunday, and they ask you, oh, what did they talk about? You can tell them money, and they should get a kick out of that, um, one for one on that. But um, like I said, uh, we're going to have to talk about some family business. But we're talking about money this morning, and then we'll also broaden it out. But the reason primarily is that uh, Antioch has run out of it. And so the economy has caught up with us. And what's happened is starting in August, giving the bottom has just kind of fallen out. And then going into September, it gotten worse. And when you're a two-year-old church, you don't have millions of dollars that you're sitting on, kind of this big pile of, of cash type of a thing. And so it becomes a kind of a real big issue. So we want to talk about that a little bit and then just broaden it out in concentric rings as we go. But... Specific to Antioch uh, and money situation, uh, I, I didn't want to talk about it. I, I didn't want to get up and talk about money because I'd rather it just go away and we can just keep focusing on ministry. And I've always prided myself on the fact that I don't talk about money or preach about money often. I've done it twice in my life and once was to a high school group. Uh, and here's what I had to learn this week. I've had members of the, the congregation, I've even had staff tell me that, Ken, you need to talk about money more. And I've always had this kind of pride in my heart, oh, no, 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 uh, I'm better than that. I wouldn't do like the guys on TV, I wouldn't do this other stuff, I'm better than that. Um, certainly, money is not what we should be talking about. And what I've been convicted with this week is that, is that Scripture doesn't talk to the easy issues or how to spend our leisure time. You don't open up Matthew and get a plan on, on how to spend your time when you're at SeaWorld in San Diego. I mean, you just don't. Scripture speaks to difficult topics at difficult times in our lives. And, and I began to realize that what was a pride thing in me, that, that I, I, I would purposely avoid talking about money or anything like this so that I wouldn't be identified with people that I looked down on, what I was in some sense doing was the opposite of what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to talk about the things that Scripture talks about. That's my job. It's, it's we've got difficult lives. Things are messy. It's hard. It, it, it hurts sometimes. 
And in the midst of that pain, Scripture speaks into those issues. And my job is, is hopefully to try and be able to accurately communicate Scriptures because that's what God wants to say to us in the midst of our, our difficult lives and, and our messy lives. And here's the thing about money. I've got a statistic up here on the screen. But money, far from not being talked about in Scripture, is probably the most talked about. It's 15% of Jesus' teachings and that's more than heaven and hell. It's 16 out of his 38 parables, and one of 10 verses in the Gospels talks about money. And then overall in the Bible, there's 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And so as I wrestled with it this week and began to realize that I was just chicken to talk about money, that it was just kind of my own self thing, I began to realize that in not being able to talk about money or willing to talk about money, I was... I was realizing that it, was, um, it wasn't because that was biblical. It wasn't because I was noble. It was just because I was weak. And it's easier not to talk about it. And Scripture doesn't afford us easy topics to always talk about. It asks us to talk about things specifically and precisely because times are difficult and because things are hard. So we talk about money precisely for that reason. Now, if I'm talking about money and saying the church is out of money, if I'm sitting out there, the first thing that's going to come to my mind is, uh, are a bunch of objections. Uh, it's just the way I work. If I'm sitting anywhere and you tell me anything, I immediately just start going in my mind and coming up with, with ideas, thoughts, criticisms, counterarguments, stuff like that. So the first thing I would say is, hey, if money's tight, why do we spend so extravagantly on bulletins? Why do we have these color bulletins that are like color front and back and, and all this other stuff. Well, let me just speak to that real quick. Uh, the bulletins that we print out, we do it in-house. We print them, we fold them, we cut them all in-house one step. And we actually spend less money than all the churches that I've worked at. Most churches, typical churches, will send off to a printer, have a template printed for their bulletins, and then each week they would grab from that stock of paper and then run it through the copy machine for a second time. It's just one print for us all the way through. Also, if there was one little line of color anywhere on the bulletin, we pay the exact same amount as if there's the whole thing's color. We don't pay by the percentage of color. We pay just whether it's color or black and white. So we actually, funny thing, because our bulletins look pretty cool, uh, we pay less for our bulletins than any of the churches I've ever worked at. It doesn't mean that there's not a church out there that might pay less than us, but we don't spend extravagantly on our bulletins, comparatively speaking. Um, we don't do it. The second problem I would have if we're talking about money is I'd look at me and I'd say, hey, the church is out of money and you're talking about money. That's pretty self-serving. Your salary's probably tied up with that, so you're just up there and it's a self-serving thing, and, and so I'm just going to kind of write that off. And that was kind of the reason this week that I was chased off of wanting to talk about this or talk about it at length. I ended up going through six of my mentors, and it wasn't until the fifth one that I actually was willing to, to ante up and talk about this, um, because most of my mentors called me chicken. Um, and, and at first I was like, yeah, 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 you just don't know what's going on. 
And then I began to realize there's something really odd in the way I'm seeing things. I would not talk about money because I'm so worried about people getting the wrong idea. I so need to please people and, and have them be happy with me rather than angry at me that I would refrain from talking about a subject that really affects all of us. It affects the volunteers in the children's ministries. It affects those of you who are engaged in, in programs or events or ministries like what we're talking about on the board, uh, the mission kids thing, and trying to trickle down the idea of compassion to our kids and to assist parents. It's parents, it's families, it's the little children, it's, it's everything. And it's not just my salary, it's other people that work hard at this church and have given their lives to ministry and they never stop, like Brandon was talking about. You go on vacation, you're, you're at home late at night, you never stop thinking about ministry when you work at a church. It's amazing. And so my people-pleaser tendency would keep me from talking about an issue that affects the whole community. And that's, that's not okay. Um, and I'm not doing it just because it's self-serving. If I was out there, I'd ask about the budget. Uh, what about the budget? And what are the, what's the oversight on that? And the truth of it is this. Our budget is small for a church our size. It just is. We are underfunded at children's ministries. We're underfunded at middle school. We're underfunded at high school. Uh, we're underfunded at worship and music ministries. We're pretty much under, we're underfunded at missions. Pretty much everything we do here is underfunded, and our budget is relatively small for a church our size, comparatively speaking. And with that budget, we have a group of elders. There's eight guys. If you get a picture directory, you open up, you'll see all eight of those men there, and they're eight of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. And there's a banker and a lawyer on there, and, and normally that's when I'd start cutting jokes. <laughs> but that's great. Because those guys are involved with risk management. That's their trade. That's their field. It's their area of expertise. And it's a great group of guys, and they're the ones that ultimately make decisions. They're ultimately the ones that have to figure out what we do in times of plenty or in times of want. They're the ones that, that deal with this stuff. And, and it's great that we have that accountability, that we have that oversight. And like I said, if you go to the picture directory, you can see who those guys are. But the budget is not... Uh, a wild and crazy budget. We know how to stretch a buck, and you know what? We're going to maybe need to learn how to stretch them further. Um, it's just a reality, and, and one we're going to have to talk about the elders are meeting today after the service, and then we're meeting again in two weeks, just trying to figure out, as things are tight, how do we really react and respond and try and um, be as prudent as we possibly can. So having said that, I just want to talk about tithing right at it in the middle of one of the weeks that's had the worst financial and economic news in generations. I mean, how's that for sailing into a headwind, right? Um, my job sucks. <laughs> uh, but the idea of tithing is simply this. In the Old Testament, it begins and it talks about first fruits, and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the idea is you've got a field. And when the field begins to get to where it's going to produce a harvest, it, it's, it's organic, right? It doesn't all of a sudden one day, every single part of that field is ripe. Uh, you know, if you've ever had an apple tree, you know, you don't go pick all the apples at the exact same time. They, they ripen at different times. And, and so as the first part kind of comes ripe or, or where you're going to harvest it, you harvest that, that's the first fruit. And the idea is you take that first fruit and you go and bring it to God. And that's God's. 
Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because what if a major storm comes or something else or some kind of, a, of an insect comes and eats up the rest of your crop and it goes bad? There's, there's no grocery stores, no preservatives, no canning system, no anything else. If the rest of your harvest goes bad and you've given away the first fruits, it's a, it's a pretty tough deal, isn't it? So the, the whole thing here is it's an amazing act of faith saying, God, I'm giving you your portion first, and then I'm going to trust you for what's going to come that's going to meet my needs. And so that's the idea of the first fruits. And the word tithe literally means, it's just the word, what it means is tenth. And it's this idea of first fruits and dedicating it to the Lord the, the idea of dedicating your firstborn to the Lord. Same kind of thing. You take the very first thing and kind of bring it to God. The, there's an argument out there that in the New Testament, everything changes. And if you want to turn there real quick, we'll look at it briefly. But at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, the argument is, hey, the tithe was an Old Testament thing. It's a part of the law. We're under grace. And... I'm not legalistic about any kind of numbers or formulas or anything, and I'm not there to look at anyone else's ties or whatever. It's, the principle is, is where we're at with seeing our stuff as God's. And you certainly see in the beginning of Acts people bringing just more than 10%, just their lands and selling them and kind of giving. And then you see Paul talking, 1 Corinthians 16, about the collection for God's people, reading in verse 1. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So this is broader than just one community. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also... They will accompany me. So two things that we notice here. One, Paul's pretty smart about money. He doesn't take it all himself and then you know, get accused of fleecing people. He says, you pick the people in your midst that are smart and trustworthy, and you give the money to them. The second thing he says is, when I arrive, each of you should set aside a sum in keeping with his income, which is kind of the whole idea of the first fruits and the tithe, is it not? And so a question that gets asked often is, what if I don't have any money or if what, I, what if I'm in debt? What do I do? I don't know. It's for you to decide. I do think that it's a principle. You give off of what you have, not off of what you don't have. I mean, it seems pretty simple that, you know, the math doesn't really work out when there's nothing to give off of, right? I, the one time I talked about money, this is the picture of tithing that makes the most sense to me. And it's just... Uh, if you take anything in nature that God created, like this apple, there's 90% uh, of this that really is for us. There's 10% of it that's for God. And it's the seeds, and it's the core, and it's what kind of goes back to the ground or what get, gets planted, and it's what multiplies and keeps things going. The idea with the tithe is yet. yet Give 10% to God, and God's going to use that money to keep this thing called church. I mean, church through the centuries, church beyond just Antioch, that the broad idea of church, that he's going to keep that going because that's God's plan to last until he returns. And so kind of the idea is God has kind of created everything. 
with his part and then our part. And it's our job to give God's part back to him. And so it's fascinating that in the Old Testament, when it talks about these tithes, that it always uses the word bring. Well, what's, what's important about that? Well, the importance of it is that it doesn't use the word give. Because you see, it's not ours. <laughs> 10% of what you have was, was brought in by the opportunities that God brings, the talents, the smarts, the, the opportunities. It's God's provision in your life, and it's all His in some sense, and you're bringing the 10% back to Him. You're not giving it to Him. And so it's how we understand our money. Is all of my money God's? How do you want me to spend this? Or do we kind of say, it's all mine, and, and I guess I'll you know, take off a little chunk and give it back to you and, and it's going to appease my guilt or something. So we've got to understand just the whole idea of the tithe here, that we bring tithe to God. But here's the reality. Uh, you know, the Ben Bulletin today, this morning, front page was talking about more cuts coming to government employees in Bend. So just in Bend, that there's going to be more job losses if you work for the city or for government. So what happens in times like these when the economy is bad, when you hear the news, when you turn on CNN? What happens is we begin to have uncertainty with regard to our future or our, our security. We begin to have uncertainty. Now when we're uncertain, it leads to hesitancy. And when there's hesitancy, we go into kind of a defensive mode. That's just natural. It's the way God made us. And so the idea is here, if I've, norm, if I've normally got kind of the idea of bringing to God or a tithe, and now all of a sudden I'm worried about my future, times are shaky, and I get to be hesitant, what I'm going to do, naturally want to do, is to carve that money back off and bring it back in inside my category so that I can build up a wall of protection and feel more secure. That's natural. It's what we're all going to want to do, bring it all back in so that there's kind of a buffer zone between me and harsh reality and, and, I, and then I can trust in that and there's security there. But here's the, the difficult faith part of what Scripture says to us. It says that we bring the first fruits and we give away our security because our trust is supposed to be in God. Our security is not in how big of a wall or a pad we can build for ourselves. I mean, sure there's wisdom, sure there's prudence, sure there's savings and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to really where is our strength found, our strength is not supposed to be found in the size of the buffer that we can create for ourselves. Our strength and our security is supposed to be found in our relationship with God. And we're supposed to put our faith there. Times are tough, and I think I'd really want to push back on what I'm saying if I was me. I play devil's advocate with myself a lot. Uh, hey, that's nice, Ken. Why are you saying that now when times are so tr uh, tough? This is not what people need to be hearing. Well, times were tougher in the New Testament. The, the, the life expectancy... For people was 40 years if you lived past age 5. So after age 5, like, your life expectancy was good, and that was 40 years. But that's just taking off all the infant mortality that, that happens between 
zero and five. And life expectancy or infant mortality rate was around 30%. So one in three kids roughly that you had would die and things would get you and you had tax collectors, you had persecution, you had Romans that were their own law. You had all of these things going on. And uh, I think times were tougher. Times were tougher than ours. And so when Jesus talks about money as much as he does, and when Paul talks about money as much as he does, he, they are talking to people that are dealing with the toughest of times. And he, they talk specifically about that issue because it's a very real issue. And they're saying, in this tough topic, you have to trust God more than you trust your money. You just have to do it. And so they go after these people, and Jesus applauds the woman that gives all she has. It's like this penny. And it wasn't the amount, and amount isn't the issue. It was, look at that person there that's willing to bring all she has and put it in because that person's faith is in God. That lady, you know, some would call her stupid. I mean, look at what she's doing. It's foolish. Yet the size of her God is so ridiculously huge that she's giving away, in some sense, all of her security and then walking out and saying, God, I'm yours. I'm trusting you to take care of me. And so we've got it rough, but we've had it good for a long time. And if we compare our rough to their rough, guess what? I don't think in our rough that infant mortality rates are going to go up. I don't think in our American rough that life expectancy will go down. It'll, it'll be tough, but there's some amazing things that we're still going to have and that we're going to take for granted. And in the middle of our difficulty, we've got to be able to do like they did in the New Testament and say, with the most basic of things, my trust and my security, my faith in God, that he's got to win the battle and I have to be able to put my arms out even in times of uncertainty and not pull them in and shrink back. Let's broaden it out one more circle here. Actually, before we do that, I just want to close down. We're going to get off money here, but I want to just close it down by saying this. Um, the biggest stress you can add to marriages is, is financial stress. One of the biggest stresses you can add to a marriage is financial stress. And I think that if you take a church family and you add financial stress, it's one of the toughest things that you can possibly do to a church family as well. And I think the natural tendency would be for all of us to kind of react out of that, that human side. And so we walk out and it's like, you know, do we need that much coffee? Or should we be doing Folgers crystals and saving 10 bucks? And everyone's going to have their different value. Everyone's going to have opinions about different things. We're all naturally going to focus on those kinds of whatever we see. And if we do that, if we let ourselves as a community start nitpicking that way and then throwing darts at each other, thinking this is more important, that's less important, and we start squabbling and, and fighting back and forth about little petty things, we're just going to be divided and just kind of be destroyed that way. You know, Antioch's, Antioch's healthy. I mean, I talk to people and I look at the things going on and the, what's so frustrating about this to me is that Antioch is healthy and the economy's not. We're, the church keeps growing attendance-wise week by week and giving keeps going down week by week. That's not the sign of an unhealthy church. It's the sign of an unhealthy economy. And so we don't want to just all of a sudden start nitpicking at each other and throwing darts. 
like a family, when there's trials or tough times, the whole idea is to look to God and say, it's not where we stand on coffee or children's ministry or we shouldn't be spending money on missions or whatever else or starting new ministries. It's not where we stand on those specifics. It's that we all stand somewhere in relationship to God that can give us unity. Does that make sense? And so this time, this trial, is an opportunity for us to all come together. If we start hurting each other, it shows something deeper because you know what? Hurt people hurt people. Have you ever realized that? Hurt people hurt other people. And if we really trust God and look to God and allow for His provision to come, pray along with the elders, etc., then we're not going to act out of our hurt. We're going to act out of our faith, and that leads to unity. There's another thing that we can do with tough times that we're going through. And if you'll turn to Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse, uh, I think it's verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Matthew 6, 19 begins this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a fascinating thing in baseball. You have to keep your eye on the ball when a pitch is coming in. If, if you pull your head out and start looking out there and you swing for the fences, you're never going to hit the ball. You've got to keep your eye on the ball because the rest of your body follows where your eye is looking. And what Jesus is saying is if your eye is on money, everything else is going to follow that and your heart will be wrapped up there too. But if we kind of take our eye off of that and we say, you know what, it's about the mansion in heaven that's not going to go away and the mortgage isn't held by you know, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Okay? It's stored up. It's waiting. That's the mansion I'm going to and that's my treasure. I can hold on to that. And when we focus on that, our heart begins to follow that. Everything else begins to follow that and it changes everything. And Jesus is saying, you can't serve two masters. Focus on heaven. Keep your eye on the ball. Everything will follow. And it's what allows Jesus to go down in verse 25 and say this, Chapter 6 again, keep reading. Therefore I will tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air and do they not sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And Jesus continues and he says this, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the, the field grow and they do not labor or spin? Yet I tell you that, that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and then tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Americans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So here's the conclusion. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Keep your eye on the ball, and all of these other things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think, again, what comes up there is, geez, how do you read that in such tough times? How can you say that to people in such tough times? Um, the people Jesus said it to were the poorest of the poor that came to hear that Sermon on the Mount. He was saying it to people who were in even tougher circumstances, and that was what he wanted to say. He could have said anything, and he says, this is what you need to hear. Your faith needs to grow. Your worry needs to shrink. You're in control of your attitude, and that's the second principle here is just attitude. Philippians talks about it. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Uh, Present your request to God. Oh, gee, I mean, I'm, I can't think while I'm up here, and that's okay. The idea is attitude. I remember hearing a, a story about Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom, if you remember, was the woman in Holland, I think, uh, who was holed up hiding from the Nazis um, or hid a bunch of, of Jews from the Nazis and then got taken away to... Uh, a concentration camp when it was found out. And I've been to her house. I lived in Holland and, you know, saw kind of the, the bricks that were covering the little room and all this crazy stuff. And it was, it's just kind of this famous story of Cory Ten Boom. Well, she came to the States and lived in the States and went to a church, a big church down in E. Free Fullerton, or in uh, Fullerton called E. Free Fullerton. It was Chuck Swindoll's church, if you've ever heard of Chuck Swindoll. And so he tells this story about after one of the services, He's towards the back of the church, and it's when his kids were smaller, and they were running around and playing and, and full of life like little kids are. And Coy Ten Boom comes up to Chuck Swindoll. And she, instead of going, oh, look at how cute your kids are. I mean, just think of what happens here. Comes up to Chuck Swindoll and says, let me see your hand. And he says, okay. You know, and so here's this older woman, and she takes his hand, and she says, make a fist. And he makes a fist, and she takes his fingers and she pries them open. And she squeezes his hand wide open like this. She looks him dead in the eye, looks at his kids, looks back at him dead in the eye. and say, I mean, this is remarkable, and says this to him. Hold them loosely. Only somebody that's been through suffering and understands the relationship with God and what can happen, yet we still have to trust God would say to someone in the face of the little kids playing, hold them loosely. We're not in control of the circumstances. We're in control of our attitude or our response. We don't get to control the input. We get to control the output. And so later, Chuck Swindoll writes this essay called Attitude. And when God changed my life, it was the most powerful thing kind of in that season of my life. And I've probably read it to this church before. It's on the screen. But listen to what Chuck Swindoll writes as someone that's been wrestling with this whole idea of, of our response and our attitude and not being able to control circumstances. Swindoll, Swindoll writes, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. 
We, not, we cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this will be given to you as well. We have to keep our eye on the ball. And so in times like these, when you read things in the bulletin, when you turn on CNN, when you begin to wonder about the future, now we're still in control of our attitudes, and we can lean hard into God. It's the opportunity to lean hard into God and to trust God with our lives. The last thing that we can do in these kinds of times is realize that it is a ripe, ripe, ripe field for missions. It's a ripe field for missions. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians, one of Paul's letters, it's one of the smaller ones. After Philippians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and read verses 3 through 5. Listen to what Paul writes. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So let's play it backwards. In all the persecutions that they were enduring, all the persecutions, all the trials, what was happening, the faith was growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other was increasing. So their ability to take God's love and strength and then to pour that outward to other people was growing. 2 Corinthians 1.5, if you want to turn to the left, beginning of 2 Corinthians, listen to what it says in chapter 1, verse 5. I think we've got this one on the board, not sure. 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Let me read that again. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Christianity is a strange deal, especially in, in comparison to other world religions and stuff like that. Most of, of what we do as people is to try and get rid of suffering, find an answer to suffering or a way to navigate through it so that it won't be in our lives. And the funny thing about Christianity is that it promises suffering. I mean, it just does it unabashedly all throughout Scripture. But, the, but what's unique about Christianity is that it promises suffering and on the back end says, here's this wonderful thing that's going to come about. There's going to be the comfort and the joy and the strength that comes from leaning on God. And so as we are able to grow in our love and in our comfort for other people, what we begin to realize is that in tough times, the ability to shine like a light for God, to make a difference, to impact culture, grows too. The Roman uh, physician Galen, back during the, the time of the plagues, wrote about when everyone was running out of Rome, even the physicians, that the Christians were running into Rome to take care of the people that were being affected by the plague. 
And so Rodney Stark, a sociologist, talks about that being one of the most amazing catalysts for the growth of Christianity was what they did, the Christians, in the middle of the suffering of other people. Because the, the human nature that we all share is to run away from things that might go bad for us. But the Christians back in those days saw suffering and the immediate thing in their mind was not, I might suffer too, but what can I do to bring comfort? What can I do to minister? I want to love like the Good Samaritan did. And so we get this opportunity with difficult situations. When it's darker, light shines more. Does that make sense? So we get this wonderful opportunity to be on mission through this. There's problems, but there's also possibilities. You know, a lot of you are leaders out there. You pride yourself on it. This was the thing I was struggling with this week, and it drove me crazy. We all know that leadership manifests itself in times of adversity. If you really want to be a great leader, it is going to show itself, or you're going to prove it when the chips are down or in a time of adversity. And so all of us in this church that, that pride ourselves on having been give, given leadership gifts, when the economy, when the country, when bend, when this church, when your friends, when you yourself are in these difficult times, you have the opportunity to prove those leadership gifts that God entrusted to you. And you prove them by rising up and overcoming the challenges that are in front of you. Doing what God has, has called us to do, which is not focus in on circumstances, but to focus in on the opportunities to love people to his glory. That when we do tangible things for others in need, even when we're hurting, when we smile at them, when we give to them, when we comfort them, encourage them, when we help guide them, that we are in some sense doing what is not typical for human people to do. Because we all take care of number one first, don't we? So we have an opportunity for missions here. We have an opportunity for missions to make a difference in this culture and to shine. You know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta would have never been Mother Teresa of Calcutta if she had been Mother Teresa of Beverly Hills. She was Mother Teresa because she was Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And she lived in an environment where she could shine. And if she had lived in Beverly Hills, nobody would have ever seen anything she was doing. And God would not have been glorified through the act of faith and sacrifice of that one woman. And so when the level of comfort in our culture, in your life, in our church is going down and the lostness or confusion or the darkness or the pain or the hurt is rising, it gives us an opportunity to be what God has called us to be and that's missionaries, witnesses. Seriously, though, I mean, I get it, okay? Um, I get it. Times are tough. I'm about to have another baby in three weeks. And, you know, the deductibles on health insurance just went up. 37% if you own a business, you'll know it. Um, my paycheck isn't guaranteed. I know what it feels like. I'm dealing with people every day that are losing their houses and losing their jobs. And I'm dealing with marriages that are struggling through that kind of stress. Okay, I get it. I feel it. 
But here is what I'm trying to grab hold of in my life, and, and I, I, that's my struggle, okay? When Antioch started, there was a group of people that were so passionate about missions. Uh, and one of the things we used to always say was this, we want a church, we want a group of people that would come together that are still idealistic enough to believe that we can change the world. We wanted a church to come together that was idealistic enough to believe that we could change the world because if it was impossible to change the world, God wouldn't have told us to try. And we have an opportunity if we would just see it and take hold of it. We all yearn and hunger for a church that's just not comfortable, but that's just on fire. We, we want a church that's so passionate. We want for our own lives to be able to do meaningful things beyond just work and make money or whatever else we're doing. We all yearn for meaning. And in these circumstances and in these times, the opportunity for us to actually do something amazing, to do something meaningful or to become something incredible is just off the chart. And if we see that, I mean, hopefully we can get past some of our own pain and trials and struggles and just get excited that we now can actually in bend make a dent for the kingdom of God. Because people will look at us and say, how do you have joy in the midst of this? How come you're not stressed when you know that things are bad or you're not going to have a paycheck or you're going to lose your job? How, with all of this going on, can you still reach over and help other people? What is going on in your life that you can do this? There's something so radically different. Who is that God that you worship? We have such an amazing opportunity as a church and as individuals to be missionaries. Oh, if we could just seize that and not worry about tomorrow. Let's let the size of our God dictate the size of our faith. And maybe there'll be something amazing that'll come out of it. My thought this week as I wrestled was simply this, that those of us who are going to walk out of these trials believing the most in God are those of us who go into the beginning of these trials trusting God the most. Do you understand the ones that are going to come out of this thing with the biggest testimony, believing in God the most, are those of us that are going into this at the front end who are willing to extend our arms even though we're hesitant and insecure and trust God the most. It's not going to be easy, but let's pray for each other that this community would trust God much. I want to just read as a closing prayer something that Paul said. In 2 Corinthians, this is Paul's kind of final thing. It's in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. Second Corinthians 4, 16 says this, and this is kind of my, my prayer, and the worship team is going to come up and be playing special music in just a second here, but this is what Paul says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, 
Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, we have to keep our eye on the ball, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so the admonishment is this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen and amen.